Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. As always, I'm Aaron Cameron. With me is Adam Pawatic. This is a fun episode. We're recording live here at the Global Property Market Conference in Toronto. I'll date stamp it. It's June 22nd, 2022 today. We're not going to be talking a lot about Canadian commercial real estate, which is a bit of a change for us. We're going to be focusing more on what's transpiring in the commercial real estate market globally. Our guest today is Jose Pelliser, who is the Global Head of Investment Strategy at M&G Real Estate. Never heard of M&G. Don't take that personally, but we live in a small little Canadian commercial real estate bubble here. But Jose, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. How do you say your name? I said it wrong, I'm sure. It's a long story, my name, but if you pronounce it in Spanish, it would be Pellicer with the Spanish th, which Latin American people hate. Thanks for not making me say it that way. <laughs> but the original name is actually Catalan, so ancient Catalan, which means tanner. So it's Pellicer, which is medieval Catalan. So Catalonia, as you might know, is a region in northeastern Spain that speaks their own language, which is a transition language between Spanish, French, and Italian. So for you guys to know. Yeah. <laughs> The story of his name is more interesting than my life story. Yeah. <laughs> because of the history lesson. It's yeah, because yeah, of the history yeah. lesson. It's a medieval world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that. Medieval here doesn't exist. Let's just jump into it, Jose. Maybe just talk about your background. You're from Spain, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just talk about how you ended up in commercial real estate. Well, there are several things that I have to thank for being in real estate. The first one is that back in the late 90s, Spain suffered from 20% unemployment. I finished university and I said, what on earth am I going to do in Spain with 20% unemployment? I may as well go and do a master's in London. So that's what I did. And I ended up working as a general economist at Deutsche Bank. Then the dot-com bust happened. I was helping the leverage finance team doing a lot of deals in the telecoms industry back then, as you should, in the late 90s. But then all this went pop. And they gave me an alternative. Either we make you redundant or you start working on real estate, which seems to be doing well. And the rest of history. So this is not your first time experiencing market turbulence then, I guess. <laughs> no, actually, the dot-com boom and bust was the first one. Then the global financial crisis, as you probably experienced yourself. And now we are in a third one, which is very different in nature, right? So it's got a bit of tech bubble elements plus commodity fueled inflation. So it's a really intellectually interesting environment where we are now. Fanned by a unprecedented pandemic that we had previously, which just makes it even more confusing, I guess. For context, the global financial crisis did not impact Canada the way it would have, Marcus, you were paying attention to, you know, Europe, of course, being the big one. You know, for a lot of people, if you worked in real estate for the last 20 years, this is probably the most uncomfortable you've been in your career with market trajectory. So We'll look for advice from a guy who's been through a few cycles here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's different. The global financial crisis was pretty big because I remember working in 2005, 2006, when helping opportunistic investments, 80%, 90% leverage was not unheard of. It was quite normal. If you weren't doing 60% leverage, that wasn't core. So there was a lot of risk that was taken at the time. And therefore, loads of loans went underwater. Banks had some issues. And therefore, it wasn't a fun time to be working, but it was a fun time to grow up as a professional. You learn the most, right? In Canada, at least, 
the worst, maybe I'm wrong because I wasn't around back then, but the worst was kind of the early 90s. And so you have a few select, a few handful of people still around that talk about how bad it was in the 90s. But if you think about that, that's 30 years ago, right? It's been that long since we've really had a sort of a bad punch in the gut to the real estate community. And so there's a lot of people learning for the first time. We said that before, if you started your career in 1995 and now you're senior VP managing a multi-billion dollar portfolio, you haven't really seen a lot of adversity in your career. And you've definitely grown some gray hairs in that time frame. Yeah. However, I have to say that the current environment is a different type of turmoil in the sense that it's only people who were around in the 70s and early 80s that have a historic context of the type of environment where we are in at the moment. You know, just right? rapidly rising interest rates as a result of out-of-control inflation. Exactly. Yeah. Rapidly rising interest rate and property yields were lower than bond yields at the time, which is something that someone who started working in the 2000s just can't phantom. How on earth are you getting an income return that's lower than your cost of debt? I mean, that doesn't make sense. But at the time, or at least my old boss used to tell me, debt wasn't used. So the idea is that, yeah, I'm buying at a yield of 4%, but my expectation is that I would enjoy double-digit rental growth. So the first year would be painful. And then maybe I could finance on year three because that's where your yield on cost was manageable. Well, maybe we're getting back there. So let's talk about market conditions and maybe we'll relate the 1980s experience to today or what we're maybe potentially seeing in the future. But first, let's talk about MNG Real Estate, yes. Jose, and maybe just describe where they are, what they do, what you do there. Yes, exactly. So you are unfamiliar with MNG Real Estate. So that's one of the reasons we're here today in the conference because MNG Real Estate is the second largest real estate investor in the UK and is one of the top 20 real estate investment managers in Europe. We manage around, uh, in euros, is 45 billion euros and the management. So in dollars, it must be something like 50 billion. And the management, mostly in Europe and Asia. We've got a tiny bit in North America, around 2.53 billion euros in North America. But it is mostly Europe and Asia. All of our external capital is Europe and Asian strategies. So we are predominantly core. but So we've got two value-add strategies, one in Asia and one in Europe as well. But we're known for core. We want that reputation to change because when you do core over the last 10 years, we've done developments as well. We've done a number of heavy refurbishments. We've bought vacancies. So therefore, we've got quite a lot of experience in traditional value-add investment. Define core. Is that geography, uh, urban centers, transportation-centric? What does that's that a very good point, actually. What is core? So I'm going to tell you my philosophy about core. So core means low risk. What does low risk mean? It means good location, sufficiently long leases, easy to sell, easy to let, low leverage, and buildings generally in good condition. Or if they're not in a pristine condition, at least they hold a monopoly over a location. Right. So just take a shopping mall, right? The shopping mall may have been built in the 1990s, but if it's got a catchment of 2 million people, then that's a core investment, right. even if it's a shopping mall. And just for context, who are your investors? Like, is it pension fund, private management? What's the ultimate source of capital? Our capital is partially what I call internal capital. So that's the life insurance business that MNG manages. So it's a UK life insurance business. That's roughly 50 now. It's, I think it's gone down to 40% of our UM. The rest is all institutional capital, mostly pension funds. So a bigger sources of capital are 
predominantly European pension funds in the Netherlands, the Nordics, and uh, North Asian pension funds. So it started off just really quickly, started off more life insurance company investment, just matching liabilities. Exactly. And then you've just grown the real estate exactly. arm to so manage on behalf of other it funds. It started basically as a real estate investment arm of our life fund money. And then gradually over the 2000s and 2010s, it has become a traditional investment manager, manager external money. We'll talk about Canada for one minute and then we'll move on. Well, is your North American investments, does it include our beloved Canada? Indeed it does. Yeah, indeed it does. And how do you finance those? Don't answer that question. We'll talk (laughs) offline. (laughs) No, that's life fund money. So zero leverage. Perfect. (laughs) Adam's cringing right now. (laughs) Podcast over. Get up over. You mentioned wanting to get beyond core assets. Any unsettled nerves about doing it in the current environment? Taking on riskier real estate in what is now becoming a riskier environment? Well, this is a riskier environment, clearly. With higher interest rates and higher financing costs and banks, more risk-averse. I assume you guys are more risk-averse. So every price today is under pressure. Cap rates are under upward pressure everywhere in the world. And everywhere in Europe and in Asia, well, in Asia, a little bit less, but let's park Asia for a second. If you take Europe, every single core deal is facing price chips and downward pressure on valuation. I expect that whilst there is uncertainty on the trajectory of interest rates, you'll have upward pressure on cap rates. But I think that that will be limited. That will take three, six, nine months. And that's it. Then the big question to me is, is there going to be a recession? And if there's going to be a recession, then you'll get a big shift in relative cap rates between, let's call it low risk and high risk ones. And that's where the opportunity for value add comes, right? After the recession. So therefore, first point, interest rates up. That's almost a certainty that is happening right now. So every real estate sector at every risk level, bar some exceptions, which we can talk in a second, is going to suffer downward pressure on valuations. But then give it six months, nine months. Then the big question is, is there going to be a recession? How deep is going to be that recession? And where is it going to bite? Have impact the most. Yeah. So I guess you're viewing as a lot of your competitors are pens down at the moment. Are you viewing this as an opportunity then? Well, I think it's an opportunity for value add, not immediately. But I think there is an opportunity for value add, let's say six, nine months from now. I think it's also for core, it's an opportunity to grab core at a low evaluation as well. The low evaluation is going to be broadly at the same spread relative to financing costs. So therefore, it's an opportunity. It's not an opportunity. Well, at the very least, you'll get property cheaper and you'll get a little bit of breathing space, you call it in English. But for value add, certainly the price for risk is going to be cheap. When the price for risk is cheap, that's where you want to invest in value. And, and just to translate it so I understand it is you're just talking about... Oh my about, God, am I talking no, Chinese? No, not at all. No, 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 not at all. It's just the delta between low-risk cap rates and high-risk cap rates is going to expand. That's correct. So you're just saying there's going to be better premium or a discount, if you think of it that way, for the higher-risk, higher-yielding assets. Exactly. Compared to today. Exactly. Yeah. And with that discount materializes, that's where you want to invest in value add. And that, if we look at history... That's precisely what happened in 2010, 2012. That's precisely what happened in the mid-90s. So when the price of risk is cheap, that's where you invest in value-add. That's where you make your double-digit returns. Was the decision to move into value-add, was that made prior to the big shift of the market or was this a reaction to the market? Was this before February or after February trying to seize this opportunity? 
I think that from a business perspective, the reason to go into value add was made a long time ago, but the timing variable was still an uncertainty. When are we going into value add? And I think that now is a good time to raise the capital to have dry powder in six, nine months. So the decision originally, was that just a desire to spice up the return? It was a business decision, right? some risk within your... Yeah, it was a business decision, right? So we've done developments, we've done big refurbishments, and we are known in the market as core. But our expertise is wider than that. So, you know, why don't we capitalize on that by going up the risk curve? Yeah, up the risk curve, but up the yield curve at the yeah, same time, right? Exactly. Do you have to raise different funds for that? Or do you just go back to the same pool of funds, so to speak, and say, listen, we're changing our strategy? No, no, no. We're not changing our strategy. We're creating a new a, a, set of products. A product. new opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit of specifics. Like if you had to scan your investment area, region. Just Europe and Asia, which is pretty, yeah. pretty broad. Like, where would you, pretty broad, let's just say, okay, I love playing this game. Okay, here's a billion dollars because that's probably the numbers that you play with. Not enough. Where do you go first? Where would be the target area? Is it industrial in Germany? And oh what do you God. look at? Yeah, tell me, like, where would you go? Oh my God. Well, I mean, look, right now there's a lot of turmoil. So it's very hard to answer that question, right? But I'm going to tell you a couple of things. So first one is, what is the country or the region where the current environment that's most insulated from the current environment. It's Japan. Japan, so there is some inflation. Interest rates have been low for 70 years there, isn't Interest that? Interest rates have been low for a long time. Yeah. There is no psyche in Japan of getting higher wages of price rises. Don't get me wrong. Inflation is now 2%, right? That's like a biggie in Japan. Yeah. But the gap between property yields or by cap rates and interest rates is the same as pre-pandemic. So Japan is the most insulated place. For core capital, Japan is the place to go now. But just take nine months from now when things have reprised, the interest rate cycle is more or less understood how much the Fed and the different central banks are going to raise interest rates. The bond yields already reflect expectations. We know where the economy is going. Then what you want to do is go to the most volatile economies. Which are the most volatile markets? Well, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples, right? But, you know, it's all opportunity-driven, obviously. But where are the interesting examples? Ireland. Not Russia and Ukraine. Very not, volatile. Not that volatile. Well, actually, <laughs> no, at MNG, we generally, and I don't want to be politically incorrect, but let's say that we only do developed markets. We don't do emerging markets. So you mentioned we were chatting before recording Malaysia. We don't invest in Malaysia. Sure. We don't invest in Russia or Ukraine. So the closest is we've got a couple of investments in Poland, but that's it, right? That's the closest we go to emerging markets. But you want to go into volatile markets. Now, let me tell you another thing. One thing about the 2020s that is very, very big in Europe is ESG, right? So yeah. the quality of the buildings, the contribution of the quality of the building to the overall valuation of the building in the 2020s is going to be much higher than in the 2010s. So let me give you an example. If you had invested in London, in an office in London in the 2010s, it didn't matter whether it was a good office or a bad office, you would have done really well. If you invest in an office in central London today, if it's a good quality office, you probably do well. If it's a bad quality office, you probably won't do well. Is that just because tenants aren't willing to pay? It's or, because tenants are not... The opposite. They're willing to pay up for exactly. good quality. They're willing to pay up for good quality, but investors are not willing to pay up for bad quality there is a green premium and a brown discount. And I think that this is going to exacerbate throughout the 2020s. So if there is an opportunity, when that green premium and brown discount, sorry, this is only audio, so you're not seeing my arms, right? <laughs> Basically pointing one finger up, one finger down, right? The gap between my two fingers, my two index fingers, as it goes bigger, getting a building from bad quality to good quality, if the numbers work, 
that's also an opportunity to buy it. Brown to buy Brown McIntyre green, green in Europe because ESG is a biggie. We've talked about ESG a lot on this podcast, but it's definitely in its infancy. And every time we have somebody on as an expert, they always reference Europe as the gold standard and to look to that model for where we'll be in 10 years. And there the big conversation is, you know, as you said, investors just don't want to get into product that has the brand exactly. discount. So would you see a market like Canada where ESG is less developed and you can probably buy future green premium properties without paying a huge markup now, or maybe you, you would have more of an issue in Europe. You see an opportunity in countries that are lagging in ESG, but will have a future where the green premium and brand discount are real. I think without knowing the Canadian market so well, I would say that that's logically sound. And I would say something else. Even if it's not so big in North America, many North American investment managers, the large ones at least, also rely on European capital. And European capital wants results and wants disclosures. So therefore, I think that that pressure slowly is going to move it's, into it's North coming. America Yeah, Jose, well. it's coming. But I mean, to be Adam's point, we've talked about it a thousand times. at length here. And this concept of green premium brown discount, it may be there at the margins, but not noticeable, right? Like it's still something that is kind of a ancillary discussion. It really doesn't come forward, particularly on the lending side. We talk about green bonds and we talk about ESG, but we haven't seen it come to fruition well, at all. In, in Europe, Canada. to be perfectly frank, so you do get the premium for certain types of buildings that have a certain green certification in rent and in capital value. But I don't think that statistically you can attribute it entirely to that green building certification. So what do I mean by this? If you have a Briam excellent versus a Briam good, so Briam is the British green building certification, the Briam excellent is generally going to have a higher rent than the Briam good. But is that only because it's Briam excellent relative to Briam good? I think that the factorization is still statistically weak. There's not enough data right. points. Okay, so that's not dissimilar to Canada. I think even if the delta between those tenants might be a buck per square foot, like we're talking basically yeah. negligible today. Yeah. Sorry, I'll just take it on a bit of a tangent while yeah. we're on the topic, and then we'll get back to more of the economic impacts yeah. you're feeling across Europe. And we need to talk about Asia. The last question on ESG, because we do a lot of this. One of the conversations we've had regularly is that in Europe, there's more teeth to the regulatory environment where if you are not participating in your investment strategies with an ESG framework, you actually have financial penalties. Is that true? And how does that work? Yeah. So in Europe, if you haven't pledged to go net zero by 2050, you're an outlier. If you're not doing serious meetings about how you are going to disclose to the regulator your achievements, so the amount of sustainable investments and the nature thereof, then you're an outlier. So the regulator is actually a big push for the industry to get their act together. So I wouldn't say that regulation in Europe is gold standard, but at least it is something. And it's not just the regulator, it's also investors who are demanding, yeah. okay, what are it's, you doing? It's at always this? the last comment. ESG is just a ground up thing, right? It's got to be pushed from the bottom, which is challenging, yeah. right? So it sounds like in Europe, exactly. the regulators are listening louder than they yeah. are here. Can I say one last thing? Yeah, sure. yeah. The other thing, of course, and again, I'm going to help you go back to the economy and so on with it. It's, it's a sort of a transition comment. So in the current environment, construction costs are high. In a world of high construction costs where normal cement, normal steel is expensive, this is an opportunity for the industry 
to get their act together and invest into sustainable cement, sustainable steel, in order to build and refurbish more sustainable buildings. Because, of course, you're building, the operation of the building might have X emissions, but then 10 years from now, when you've got to refurbish it, you still have to use cement and steel. And that's a very unsustainable way of development. So in periods of high construction costs, that's where you can get a technological leap forward for the whole construction industry to help us get to the net zero target. I love the vision. <laughs> it's an opportunity. Let me give you an example, actually. Please. In 1975, the year I was born, right? The average miles per gallon of trucks on the road, I don't know whether that's in Europe or worldwide, right? It was 10 miles per gallon. In 1985, 10 years later, it was 20. Why is that? It was because oil prices had gone up substantially. So basically, every truck and car company basically took all these little projects of more fuel-efficient vehicles and made them a reality. So when the market circumstances change, it's not just the regulation and our pledges as investment industry. That works. But it just does the work partially. What you need is a big structural change in the market that basically wakes up and brings up technology. You're using automobiles as the analogy. I mean, just think about electric vehicles now. Exactly. They must be just exploding. I haven't seen numbers. But it's the I mean, same it, thing. It would make no sense if electric vehicle purchases hasn't quadrupled just in the face yeah, of such Yeah, there was an article gas. in the FT about this today. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Maybe that's our segue then to Europe. Because obviously, the war in Ukraine having such a dramatic effect on oil prices then drives behaviors and to Aaron's theory fills up the Tesla dealership. And he's probably right. We feel the effects of the war here in that you know, supply chain disruptions are very difficult to deal with. But what about investing in countries that have a front row view of the war? How does that change your perspective? Because obviously here, we're thousands and thousands of miles away. So any effects we really feel are economic. So what would be your view on, you mentioned Poland is probably the closest investment you have, but where else in Europe are you invested and how do you view the war? Well, you know, just think of the countries that depend 100% of Russia for gas distribution, right? Germany. Italy, Hungary, even Germany, right? The engine of the European economy depends a lot on Russian gas. So what's going to happen? So Germany is going to invest in liquefied natural gas facilities and over the next few years is going to up its energy transition to stop its dependency on Russia. Italy is going to do the same. So as you know, you may or may not know this, I'm sure that someone has told you this in the past, but during the pandemic, for the first time, the European Commission issued a bond underwritten by the whole block, which was huge, okay? And that bond is going to be used to finance green projects throughout Europe. Italy has earmarked 200 billion of investments. So that will improve the grid enormously. But I'm sidelining your question. So basically, <laughs> your question is, well, okay, so would you invest in Germany then? I think that obviously... Germany is not energy independent and therefore it should carry a slight risk premium relative to Canada or the US, which are energy independent, right? And there is a war. Now, will the war escalate? Well, I'm not in a position to say that because I don't know whether the war will escalate or it will be just a war of attrition that will last 10 years. I don't know. What I do know is that whatever happens, the next 10 years are going to be years in which 
Europe is going to do a big effort to become energy independent. Yeah. D- disconnect from the reliance on exactly. oil and gas. Exactly. We've only got a couple minutes left. Oh, what a pity. Uh, I'm sorry, fun. Jose. No, I know. <laughs> so I didn't want to forget about Asia. So maybe just if we can just yes. spend the last couple of minutes just talking about your strategy in Asia. Yes. So basically, in Asia, we only invest in developed Asia. So this means Japan, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. So in the current environment, Australia is very much in the same camp as the Anglo-Saxon world. So high internal demand-driven inflation and therefore upward pressure on interest rates. So whilst Australia is a great long-term bet, in the short term, there is exactly the same uncertainty there is about interest rates and where cap rates are going to go. Japan is the lowest risk strategy at the moment. So we have very much 30% of our allocation in Asia is in Australia. So we are long-term investors in Australia. But at the moment, new deals in Australia, that's a hard one. Yeah, it makes sense. Last question yeah, or, or same question. You got a billion dollars and maybe you didn't answer it last time because you kind of just jumped to Japan. So I'll put the pressure ah. on you. You got a billion dollars <laughs> and it's a value add strategy. Like, where are you thinking? Like, where would you put that money best to use? Well, I mean, partially in uh, CapEx projects to green properties. Right. So predominantly in the office sector, which is the easiest one, yeah. right? Well-located office sectors. In Europe and Asia, in, you're kind pre- of agnostic. Predominantly in Europe, because in Asia, ESG is not as big as in okay. Europe. So, you know, the brown discount is going to be biggest in Europe. I think that Asia, Australia is going to be interesting in nine months, I think. More Again, volatile, therefore value. back to that delta between exactly, low yield exactly, and high yield risk. Yeah. Exactly. I'm very interested in seeing how Korea develops. The big question, I think, is Hong Kong, right? And we could have another podcast just on Hong Kong and in China. But I would just say Hong Kong is the most interesting value play in Asia right now. But that's not for core capital. And you've got to accept that that you're having political risks there. To what extent Chinese regulation is going to overtake the more ease of doing the Anglo-Saxon way of doing business that Hong Kong had in the past. But high street retail, prime high street retail in Hong Kong has more than halved in value since 2019. Wow. More than halved, right? So do you think that Hong Kong is going to go anywhere? Do you think that Hong Kong is going to still be a key financial center for Asia 10 years from now? If you do, Hong Kong sounds like a good bet. But that's a question that I would put for. But today, if I invested in Hong Kong today and I went to an investor, they would say, okay, Hong Kong's part of China. So you would spend half of the meeting justifying why you are investing in Hong Kong. Not a good use of time. So core capital should invest in Hong Kong now, unfortunately. <laughs> you, you've confused Aaron now, but where he's going to invest his billion dollars. I was that going he's straight to Hong to, Kong before, yeah. Yeah, Hong Kong is good, but not for core capital. Yeah, well, the political risk is too great, I understand. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are out of time, Jose, but I want to thank you for joining us today at the Global Property Market Conference. Of course, thank you to First National for powering the podcast. Up next, we are going to do an after show, so don't go anywhere. And we'll end off by saying thanks to our guest. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to have been here. Have a good day, everybody. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Jose. Likewise. Thank you. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I digest the uh, the conversation we just had with Jose Pelliser. That was interesting. You know, we don't often get the the you know I managed fifty billion dollars of real estate globally 
conversation. European and Asian assets. And, yeah, uh, and I don't know very uh, much about North America. So <laughs> yeah. I found that really interesting. Well, still has a couple billion in North America. So yeah, you know, just a couple. Uh, yeah, here and there, you yeah, know, a a sprinkle, just a sprinkle. <laughs> he probably owns one building, one downtown office tower, <laughs> free and clear. Right? Yeah. Listening to him talk, clearly a very smart man, managing a very, very large portfolio. He's like the second largest property owner in Britain and the twentieth largest in Europe. So just a, a huge, huge amount of scope to his investments. And what I was struck by was how simple... I mean, I know that when you're at that level and he's the head of global investment strategy, so you have this way of making the complex simple, even though you understand the complex. And maybe when he's looking at pro formas, it does get really granular. But he was kind of just saying, no, no, no. Like It's just there's an interest rate and then there's a yield and that has to be a certain level or it doesn't make sense. And it's funny because... You and I have had this conversation so many times, particularly in the last sort of four four months since February, where we talk about what is that delta from interest rates to property yields and and that what is that comfort of level? And and I'm always kind of surprised because in my mind, and I always kind of second guess myself because people go, well, but you know, this and that, and it doesn't have to be very high. And sometimes it can go down and a uh, wall of capital. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, people have so yeah, much money to deploy and there's no so much opportunity. And, yeah, and, so, and, yeah. and I always go, it just doesn't make sense. Like yeah, if you're borrowing at a certain rate, you have to buy at another rate that's above that in order for it just to make any sense. Well, you don't have to. I mean, you look back 30, 40 years and negative leverage was much well, more Well, and he common. talked about that. And not even, not even anticipating future rental growth. It was just your debt was going to cost you more than the return on your uh, investment. And that's why you wanted to reduce your debt as quickly as possible. I mean, Obviously, we live in a dramatically different world now in that regards. But I mean, that's you know half a lifetime ago. It was pretty common. So. Yeah, I mean, and I guess when your value, your property was worth a million dollars, and you could raise five hundred thousand fairly quickly, it was easy to pay down the debt. That's like our parents saying, you know, I bought my first house for thirty thousand dollars, and my annual income was forty k. Like it was just, it was <laughs> the idea of paying down your your mortgage was simple because it was just a little bit of savings was 10% of your mortgage mortgage amount where we just don't live in that world anymore. But nevertheless, it was just, it was, it was interesting to hear him say this, this global perspective that the math is still really straightforward, right? I uh, talk about paying off debt just kind of reminded me I had a conversation the other day with somebody and they were talking about uh, CMHC's new program which allows for 50-year AMs and they go, well, how are we supposed to pay off the property? I go, well, I don't think anybody really pays off the property. You know, I don't know that that's the, the strategy in an environment where debt is costing you less than you're generating income from the property. You know, it's, it's a yield enhancer in the current market, not a detriment to it. Obviously, now it's getting pretty skinny, but it should be a yield enhancement. Should be. Should be. Still is. It's just the gap is pretty thin right now. and The market will adjust. Conversely, if you go back to uh, 2020 when the bond rates plummeted, the gap then was enormous. Uh, cap rates came in a little bit, probably industrial than most out of all the asset classes, but the gap was the widest it had been in 10 years. So if you were financing in 2020, your positive leverage was enormous. Yeah. And it, those days are gone for now, temporarily, probably. One of the other interesting things from the conversation with Jose was just the matter of factness about ESG and just how it's just a part of their world. And whereas he, you know, when we talk to Canadian investors and talk about ESG, and we have a lot, there's still this sort of exploratory nature to the conversation. Yeah, we're still trying to figure out how ESG fits into our platform and our investment strategy, and we know it's important and it's, and it's part of our core culture. Yet we don't really know how it 
actually intertwined. And we just hired somebody three weeks ago for the for that yeah, role. Yeah, right. Versus him was just like, no, no, no. Like it's just it's table stakes. Like everybody's doing it. We all have to do it. It's just part of the when you go to look at properties, your first one of your very first questions is, what's the yield? What's the ESG implications? Right. It's just it's just there. Yeah, and here it's transitioning somewhere in between uh, a siloed afterthought and uh, core partner real estate. I mean, the transition is happening, but we're not there yet. That's for sure. Relating to energy, uh, one thing you highlighted, of course, was a premium for real estate that is in countries in energy independent state. I thought that. I mean, obviously, it's you know, it's it's it makes sense and it's it's fairly obvious, but something I'd not thought about Canada because, of course, you know, everywhere here we're you know we're energy independent. That's something you don't think about foreign capital coming to invest in Canada. That would be an attribute you look for because we're just accustomed to that. Just being that it's not uh, not connected to Tied the to international, yeah. international market. Yeah. So I had not thought about that either. But clearly, that's the world we're living in or will be living in going forward. And the other one that I found interesting was the movement into value add at a time when the return is outweighing the risk. You know, if you simplify it, you know, value add maybe be twice as risky as a core, but you're getting four times the return. So it's an interesting uh, take on the market cycle right now that you're going to get an overweight return for taking on additional risk in your investment. Yeah. I mean, that's probably less a factor of, well, I mean, I think it's hundred percent a factor of just liquidity in the marketplace, right? If there's a portion of less money chasing opportunities, how do I say this? That makes sense. You know, let's say today is hundred percent investment. And if there's only 50% investment, more of that 50% that's still there is going after core cash flowing assets. Less is going after the riskier value add assets. Meaning the flight to quality. Meaning, yeah, meaning there's that that value add premium increases or value add discount, I guess, from a valuation perspective to attract investment dollars. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but I think that is it for our after show. Thanks to everybody who uh, listened to the end. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.